Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 21st, we are studying Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. Jesus tells two parables, one about praying and another about the righteousness that comes through faith in the mercy of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Ned Murby. Pastor Murby serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blackwell, Oklahoma. Pastor Murby, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Tim. It's good to be with you. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. We're beginning Luke chapter 18. What should we know about where we are in the Gospel of Luke, what comes before and after that helps us with the text we've got today? Well, yeah, context is always, I think, a good place to start when we ask, you know, what's being talked about, um, because everything happens within a context. If we just look back at the end of chapter 17, we see that that Jesus has uh, had a conversation with the Pharisees asking, when is the kingdom of God um, going to come? And then Jesus tells his disciples, after telling the Pharisees that the kingdom of God isn't going to um, be coming in ways that can be observed. Um, it's, it's not going to be this big, you know, it's not going to be armies marching on Jerusalem or something to kick out the Romans. Um, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples and warns them that the days are coming when, when they're going to long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. They're going to long to have Jesus with them again, um, but they won't see it. Um, his, his presence will become... Um, his invisible presence after his ascension, um, and, and and he tells the disciples the realistic fact that there will be suffering in this life, as as we look for his coming again. But then he tells them that that when he returns, that the Son of Man is going to come suddenly. Um, he's going to surprise us. Um, not that we should be entirely surprised, because he's told us he's coming, but it's it's not going to be something that we can predict. And and when he comes. He's going to come in the fullness. It's not going to be a gradual chipping away at the devil's hold on the world, but but the fullness of his kingdom will come um, to to us in an instant, like lightning flashing in the sky. Hmm. And and I think it's it's not exactly a continuation of that conversation that we have um, in our two parables today, but that that needs kind of. That context should be in the back of our mind, I think. And and even as we look forward, and I don't want to get into what your future guests will cover, but you know, shortly after this, Jesus talks um, is approached by the the rich young ruler who asks, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And and the rich young ruler thinks that he has kept the law. Um, sounds very familiar to one of the characters in, in one of the parables we hear today. And, and he goes away sad when Jesus tells him, well, if you think you've kept the law, then sell everything you have and, and, and follow me. And, and then Jesus will even say that it's, it's impossible for anyone to be saved. Um, 
except it's not impossible with God. And, and our parables are, are leading up to that. So it, all of this together, we should, we should be ready to understand that, that these parables are Jesus trying to draw us out of ourselves um, so that we look to God, trust in God, and be ready even when everything that we see around us doesn't look like things are going the kingdom's way, um, to be ready to, to receive Christ because he is, he is at the door knocking and um, he will be here before we know it. I think that's a helpful connection to that previous context, the suddenness of the Son of Man's coming. What now for the disciples? And prayer, trust in God, those are going to be two things that we will see in the two parables we have today. Pastor Murphy, when we look at parables, one thing that I, I like to do is to think about the title of the parables. You know, it's good that we have titles for parables. It allows us to refer to them in shorthand and know what we're talking about. But sometimes the title colors the way we look at that parable one way or another, sometimes helpfully, maybe sometimes less helpfully. So the first parable that we have today in the ESV is titled The Parable of the Persistent Widow. What do you think of that title? Is it, is it helpful? Could we think of another title that might put the focus somewhere else? What, what do you think? Well, I, 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 for me, this one is, is pretty good. And, and you always, um, I think sometimes history has given some of these parables t- titles and, and we want to do one better than our, our, <laughs> our predecessors, you know, than our father's generation. Um, you know, we, we really, we really like to do this with what's commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And then say, right. no, no, it's not really the prodigal son. There's, there's two prodigal sons. They're prodigals in different ways. And then somebody tries to one up everybody else and say, no, it's, it's really all about the loving father. And, and, and it is. And, and to be clear on these things and, and remind us of what really the essence of these parables is about is, is good. But I, I think here um, in this first parable, we're going to see that, this there's there's not a character that strictly represents God, hmm. um, and and so it is really the focus is on the persistence of of the widow and um, in the result that her persistence brings. Um, so I'm I'm that one gets a gets a pass for me. I, I'm not going to try to do better than than either the editors of the ESV or. Um, the church that has gone before us. <laughs> I, I will repent. Do you have one, though? I, I will repent okay, of my, well, my desire to one-up others. I don't, I don't know that I do. I mean, and that's just, it's a question that I like to think about personally. And like you said, the one that often comes to my mind is the parable of the prodigal son, as it is commonly called, because that does, I think, put our focus on that son, and maybe we lose some of the things if that's all we think about. But as you said, there is no need for us to to always think that we can do better than our fathers. It is good to receive what the fathers have given. In this case, I, I think that the parable of the persistent widow, I think that that title matches up with what St. Luke narrates in the first verse. One of the nice things about both of these parables that we get to read today is that you get St. Luke giving the purpose of the parable from the get-go. So you you kind of know what you're looking for ahead of time. And Jesus says this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so calling it the parable of the persistent widow, I think is a 
it matches up with what Jesus says. I want to come back to something you said, and maybe we can do so after we read the parable and as we're discussing it. I think you said there's not a character in this parable that strictly represents God, which I think is, I, I, I think I know what you're, where you're going with that, but I want to talk a little bit more about that. Any, before we read this parable, any more introductory comments on what we're going to see in these first eight verses before we jump right in? Um, well, just as we listen to them, we need to be careful. Not every parable is the same. Um, and we often want to take parables as allegories. That is, to, to see every kind of object, everything referenced in the parable as, as having a one-to-one relationship with, with something else. And, and some parables are... Um, are, are very much allegorical. And um, again, when it comes to the parable of the sower, or, or I think some people prefer to say now the parable of the seed, um, um, but in, in the parable of the sower, Jesus thankfully gives us an explanation, because I can't imagine how many different ways we would have taken that uh, over the, the 2,000 years of church history since he's told this parable if Jesus hadn't explained it to the disciples and the evangelist hadn't recorded it for us. But there very clearly, um, Jesus says the seed is God's word, the seed that falls on the path, and and the birds come in and eat that seed. Those are the ones who hear God's word, but immediately Satan comes in and takes it out. So we can say that the the birds represent the, the devil who's snatching the word away. The seed is the word. The seed that falls among the, the rocks are, and then is burned up by the heat of the sun, those are the ones who believe but then fall away. You know, the, the, the scorching heat of the sun is the scorching heat of, of tribulation. Jesus explains all of that to us. Um, here, like you said, each of these parables, Jesus gives us, or, or Luke gives us a comment about what Jesus is doing. And, and then these short parables are, are just a picture to illustrate that that one point. Um, and so let's not try to connect every part of the story to, um, to, to something, um, to, to some aspect of the kingdom of God, but, but simply look at the picture as a whole, how it reflects um, God's kingdom and our relationship to our, our loving Heavenly Father, um, as a whole and not try to break it up. That, that is a very helpful comment because there is a temptation when reading and interpreting the parables that sometimes we want to find a significance in every detail. And as you said, you know, the parable of the sower is a good example where Jesus does that with a variety of details, uh, quite a few of them. But there are some parables where the details are in the parable because that's what makes the story work, if I can say it that way. And they're not meant to do anything other than give this big picture story that makes this point that Jesus is. And today's parables are a good example of that, where we want to be careful with how we, how many of the details we take and assign a particular meaning to. Luke, Jesus, both in this text are going to be our guide in that. So we read in Luke chapter 18, beginning at the first verse. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. 
For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That is the first parable. That's Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Murphy, let's start with that introductory comment from St. Luke. The reason Jesus told the parable, the effect was that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Tell us about that introduction and how that's, just tell us about that introduction to get started. Okay, yeah, so this is a, a great blessing, I think, that, that we have from sacred scripture, the, the purpose of this particular parable. Jesus wants his people to pray. Um, Jesus' motivation for telling this parable to his church is so that we would hear it and, and pray more, more fervently, that we would pray continually. Um, there, there's this very interesting Greek word that gets translated in the ESV as ought. Um, it's, the Greek word is, is day, and, and it's often translated as it is necessary. And, and Jesus uses this word frequently when he is pointing ahead to his, his passion. Mm-hmm. It is necessary that the Son of Man go to Jerusalem and be handed over into the hands of um, sinful men and, and, and suffer and be crucified and, um, and on the third day rise again. And, and it, it's not—the way I you know, approach this word is, is not understanding it as a command. I mean, Jesus is obedient when he goes to suffer— but the necessity of of him going to suffer is is based not just on on what God the Father has sent him to do or or, or what he has committed himself to do, but it's it's re- required of him by his nature, by his purpose for coming in the flesh. I mean, God has orchestrated all of history, all of creation towards this moment. Um, and then, now, not every use of the word needs to be understood exactly the same way, but but I think we have a little bit of a parallel thought here that that Jesus is saying that that it's it's necessary. There will always be a reason for for his people to pray. Um, not for, so I don't think that Jesus is saying, okay, look, I want you to pray all the time. You have to pray because that's what I'm telling you to do. He, he's simply saying, look, you need prayer. You, you need this to be a part of your life. It is good for you. Your life is going to push you into situations where the only way you can get through it is with, with prayer. Um, and, and that's really the, the, I think, the thought behind this, this word ought in, in the English, that, that we ought always pray. I mean, we always have reason to pray. As Christians, it's what we do. It's, it's how this world... Um, like the, the, it's like the world is on one side of us, and the Word of God on the, is on the other side of us, and, and, and they come together in our life and, and just chip away at us so that mm. praying to God is the only thing that we have left to do mm. as we trust in Christ. Mm. Um, and, and that's what I really think Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples in this parable. 
Mm. All right. So that's there you have the purpose. And I think it's a helpful explanation to that word. It is necessary. It must be this way. That's simply the way that it has to be when we as Christians live in this world waiting for the coming of the Son of Man that Jesus has been talking about. What what must it be like for us as Christians? It must have prayer that we would not lose heart. Now, to get that point across, Jesus tells this parable. And there are two characters in this parable. The first one we meet is a judge in a certain city. Tell us about this judge, Pastor Murby. Well, I, I would describe this judge as a scoundrel. He doesn't care about anybody. He doesn't care about what is right in the eyes of God. Um, he doesn't care that the, the, the men and women over whom he issues judgment, he, he doesn't care if they get what is, is right and appropriate. Um, he, he's living for, for himself. Um, and, um, he is not just, um, and, and Jesus even will describe him as, as the unrighteous judge or the unjust judge. You know, we call our um, judges on the highest court in our nation, you know, justices, um, but he is, he is the unjust justice. Um, so he's a, he's a contradiction, um, and I think that's what Jesus intends for us to see. And, you know, we, we see this in, in human nature. You know, we, we have... Um, politicians who don't really seem to want to work for the good of the people that they're elected to serve, but th- but they work for themselves. And, and, and it's the, you know, I think every civilization, every society has had people like that. It, it's not an unfamiliar character, either from our own real world experience or or in in literature. There are people that just simply. Their job is to promote justice, but for whatever reason, they don't do it. Mm. All right, so that's the judge that we've got. What's perhaps a little interesting about this judge, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but just to notice that the description Luke or Jesus gives of this judge, you know, that he does not fear God nor respect man, the judge himself recognizes that about himself, which is, he, you know, he doesn't seem to be in denial that that's who he is. He, he knows it. Yeah. He owns it. And I, th- I think that's interesting. But before we get too far afield, there's another character we meet before that happens. It is a widow. So tell us about the widow and then how she begins to interact with this unrighteous judge. Okay, so uh, a widow would be one of kind of the lowliest people in in society in in which Jesus is telling this parable um you know the 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 men were the ones who inherited the land and the wealth and when this woman's died when this woman's husband died she's left um without really the ability in respectable society to to do a whole lot she she's at the mercy of um, her husband's relatives, um, you know, maybe go, she could go back to her own father's house if he was still alive. But, but quite often when a woman became a widow, um, she was at the mercy of, I mean, she, she became, if she didn't have children to take care of her, she would become a beggar. And it's, it seems that, that this woman, um, you know, doesn't have a son coming to the judge on her behalf. So it really seems like she, she's by herself. She has no family left. It maybe it's uh, a bit of a distant relative who's supposed to take care of her. This might be who her adversary is, but mm. again, you know, th- this is just a story 
we don't need to, to try to invent a complete history for it. This woman has been wronged. She has nobody else to turn to. So she goes to the judge and asks for justice. Mm. Now, now, how does he how does he respond? I mean, take us into this interaction, because this is where the parable, I think, starts to make the point that Jesus wants to make. Yeah, so th- this this woman comes to the parable. I mean, comes to the um, to the judge and and keeps coming to him. You know, the, Jesus is, tells a story as you know, she every day she's coming, or every time that this judge you know opens his his courtroom doors, she's there saying, "Give me justice, give me justice," or or avenge the wrong that has been been done to me, or or make my situation righteous again. Put things in the the right order. Um, but, but he refuses, um, for a while he just like, I'm not going to bother doing that. Um, and it's, again, we don't, we're not told exactly why, but either it's laziness. He doesn't care about this woman and he just doesn't want to take the time to do it. Or, you know, maybe he's been bribed or, or, or whatever, you know, it's, it's, he's, he has more to gain from not giving her justice than giving her justice. Um, except that doesn't last forever simply because this woman comes to him over and over again so many times that he just gets worn out. And, and, and so he says, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a little ambiguous. Is, is he saying that she's, she's just completely wearing him out and, and he's frazzled and frustrated. Maybe he's, Maybe she's coming to his home every night, you know, knocking on the door while he's trying to sleep, saying, give me justice. You know, um, those details aren't given to us. Um, there, there's also a hint, though, that, that maybe he does care about what people think about him a little bit. Um, and, and having this woman in his courtroom or at his house or pleading to him on the streets, it's just embarrassing. And, and, and he wants to get rid of that, that embarrassment. But what, what we certainly see here is this judge finally gives the woman what she wants, not because he cares about her, not because it's right to, to respond to her in, in a favorable judgment, but just simply for his own sake. I want this over with, so I will give her what she wants. And, you know, that's, that's the end of the parable. All right, so that's that's where the the story that Jesus tells comes to an end. And now Jesus himself is going to give us part of the interpretive key. St. Luke told us it's a parable that they should always pray and not lose heart. Now Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He instructs us as listeners, pay attention to those words of the unrighteous judge. Now this is where I think that comment that you made at the beginning comes into play that there's not a character here that strictly represents God, the judge would seem the closest, and yet Jesus calls the judge unrighteous, and we know that God is righteous. He, God is not unrighteous. He is holy, just, righteous. So what is it about the unrighteous judge's words that Jesus wants us to pay attention to? How does that point us to a truth about the kingdom of God when we've got someone in the parable acting, I think, pretty much the opposite of what God would do. Well, exactly. Um, so, so this is a, a, a parable that teaches us a lesson, I think, by contrast. Um, it's a realistic story, I, I think. It, it, it's, 
we can certainly imagine something like this happening in, in real life. Somebody who's a scoundrel himself gets talked into doing what's right simply because he gets worn down and, and, and wants the problem to go away. Um, and, and so this woman receives, um, even though she, you know, she, she, she has, she has no place to go, but to this judge. And, and finally the judge gives her this because he is worn down by her. And so God is not an unjust judge who needs to be um, beaten down by us in order that we um, can compel him to give us what we want him to do for us. Instead, um, God graciously hears our prayers. He knows what's good for us, um, but he also wants us to pray to him. Um, so God, in his justice, will certainly give justice to his elect. Um, to those who cry to him day and night, if, if an unjust judge is going to respond favorably to a widow, don't you think that God will hear your prayers and, and will answer them? And, and so this, this parable is told to us because Jesus knows that there will be times, even long periods of time, when we cry out to God and feel like God isn't answering. Um, but if, if an unrighteous judge will finally do what's right because he's been worn out, then you can certainly know that your, your loving Heavenly Father, when the time is right, will give you that which you need. Yeah, it's a, a, again, this parable works by a contrast. If an unrighteous judge ends up doing the right thing and gives justice for all the wrong reasons, how much more then will God give you that justice because of who he is, not only as a just and righteous judge, but as your merciful father, as Jesus has been teaching his disciples elsewhere in this gospel. So it ends up being a beautiful parable from what is it, maybe a, you know, a realistic story, no doubt, but a difficult one. What a wonderful teaching concerning who God is and the way that he responds to our prayers. We're going to pick up a little bit more of this parable and the next on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 18 with Pastor Ned Murby. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, March 21st. We are studying Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor Ned Murby. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blackwell, Oklahoma. Pastor Murby, prior to the break, we were looking at the parable of the persistent widow where Jesus explains, pay attention to the unrighteous judge and what he says. We see how God works by way of contrast. If the unrighteous judge ends up doing what is right for all the wrong reasons, 
how much more will the righteous God, the holy God, the loving Father that you have, do what is good for you when you cry out to him. So keep doing that. Pray to him. Do not lose heart. Now, Jesus closes this parable or his explanation to the parable with a question. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why does Jesus ask that question here at the end? Well, I I think this is a bit of a rhetorical question. I mean, obviously, of the people present, Jesus knows better than anybody else what the state of the world will be when when he comes again. Um, And yet, looking at at Scripture overall, the, the story of of scripture is the story of God preserving a faithful remnant. Um, and, and he beautifully promises that in, in the old Testament prophets that, that, you know, the, that there's still life in the stump, even after it's, it's cut down by the Babylonian captivity and, and the branch from Jesse's stump will grow. And, and of course that's Christ, but that also means that, that, the Old Testament Church, which becomes the New Testament Church, is 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 preserved through all of that exile and rebuilding, and so forth. And and in the New Testament, the same way, the Book of Revelation beautifully paints for us the picture, yes, of trial and suffering for the Church, but that that God is at work to preserve His Church. So I think we can say confidently, yes, He will find faith on the earth, but. I don't think that's really Jesus' purpose in asking this question. Um, I, I think Jesus wants everybody who hears this, to, um, starting with those to whom he was speaking this parable 2,000 years ago, but then also for everybody who hears this question um, through the Holy Scriptures, to ask, will he find it in me? Um, and, and of course, you know, faith is a, a gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's sustained and kept alive by the Holy Spirit. Um, so it, it's not a question that we want to try to answer and say, oh, yes, by my own power, I will stay faithful. But rather, this question throws us back to where we began, that that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Um the only answer that, that we can give to this question, then, as we apply it to ourselves, is to turn back to the Lord in prayer, ask Him to keep us faithful, and to persist in this prayer in the midst of many things that, that would pull us away from the faith. Um, and, and so it's only um, by prayer and the Holy Spirit that, that we are kept faithful, so that the Lord won't just find faith somewhere when he comes, but that he'll find faith in us, um, either when he comes, you know, if we're still alive, or when, I mean, even if we die before he comes, our bodies will be raised, and, and you know, that's when the last judgment takes place. Will you be found faithful at the last judgment? I think this whole question is is put forward so that we get down on our knees and pray, God, keep me faithful mm. until your son comes again. I'm reminded of particularly the explanation that Luther gives to the second petition in the Lord's Prayer, or yeah, the explanation. What does this mean that we pray thy kingdom come? You know, God's kingdom comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. And that sounds like that's the force of that rhetorical question Jesus gives, inviting us, calling us to that prayer 
pray that this is true about you for yourself when he comes, that his kingdom has come to you, that you're a member of that kingdom when he returns. Now, Pastor Murby, as the text continues, Jesus tells another parable called the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. I don't know that we need to discuss that title too much. It seems pretty straightforward. There, those are the two yeah, characters. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the what's the connection? How does how does the first parable that Jesus has told about a persistent widow, what's the move that he's making now in telling a parable about a Pharisee and tax collector? Well, well, there's there's two kind of intertwined themes I think that run through these parables, and and that's the theme of of prayer, which is quite obvious, and then also the prayer of of righteousness. You know, the the justice that the that the widow asks for. You know, especially in the Greek, it comes out better than in English. But but justice and righteousness, um, th- those words sound very different in English, but in in Greek they they come from the same root, um, and so it's we have this this uh, like braided theme of of prayer and righteousness. How, how are we made righteous? Um, how do we receive righteousness? And and how do we come to God in prayer? And um, where where the first parable teaches us to pray without stopping, without ceasing, um, and without losing heart, the second parable does more to teach us kind of what our attitude to prayer should be, how we should approach prayer. So with those themes coming together, before we read this parable, and again, Jesus is going to give us an, or St. Luke is going to give us an explanation about the purpose of this parable at the beginning. We've talked about these two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. We have met both Pharisees and tax collectors along the way in Jesus' ministry. Just give us a a brief reminder. When we talk about these two people, Pharisee and tax collector, what are some of the the themes that automatically come to mind when Jesus uses these as the two characters? Well, the the Pharisees um, are, are a kind of, party in, in the New Testament era of um, those who, who go back to the, the law of Moses and, you know, expand on it. Um, they, they grow out of, of thinking, you know what, we, our, our fathers sinned and turned away from God and they got carried into exile. And in the Old Testament is just one reminder after another of how faithless people can be. So let's not just teach the Ten Commandments. Let's, let's make rules so that we don't even get close to breaking the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments say the Sabbath day should be kept holy and we should rest. Well, we're going to set a limit to how many steps somebody can take on the Sabbath day so that they don't accidentally profane the Sabbath. Um, and, and we hear Jesus get into confrontations with the Pharisees, especially regarding the Sabbath, over and over again. They don't like it that he heals people on the Sabbath. They don't like it that that his disciples pick a little bit of grain and eat it on the Sabbath. You know that, you know, heaven forbid. That's that sounds too much like work. You know, wait a day and and, and then do that. Um, and, and so the the Pharisees, by setting up these rules and laws, saying you know we're going to make sure that we live holy by doing all these extra things, they had a tendency to get pretty puffed up about themselves. Well, you know, the the common people. You know, they they kind of skirt the edge of God's law, but we you know we make sure that we live rightly and justly and holy, um, and, and so the you know even today we when we call somebody a Pharisee we mean 
you know, they, they make rules that aren't required by God and, and kind of find their righteousness or, or justify themselves by those man-made rules rather than um, by the word of, of God declaring us righteous in Christ. And the tax collector was the exact opposite. The tax collector is somebody who um, willingly, maybe out of some sort of economic necessity, but but willingly told the Romans, okay, I'll, I'll collect your taxes for you. And and in dealing with those taxes, they would handle the the Roman coins, which which bore the image of Caesar. So they were handling idols every day because there's graven images on all that money. Um, and and they had a reputation for not being honest. Um, and, and it's just a little while after this that Jesus is going to go into the home of Zacchaeus, maybe the most mm-hmm. famous tax collector after Saint Matthew. Um, in, in, in all of Scripture. But th- these are opposite ends of, of the social spectrum. Um, as the, the common idea, you know, the people of Jesus' day, when they thought, well, who are the holy people, the good people, the Pharisees would be near the top of that list. They'd be up there with the, the priests and the, you know, the Sadducees. The tax collectors would be near the bottom, you know, like the untouchables. You, you don't want anything to do with them. They're liars, they're cheaters. They're in league with our enemies. Um, they, they, we shouldn't even recognize them as part of the Jewish people anymore. So those are the two people that Jesus introduces in this parable um, when he teaches us how to pray. So with that introduction in place, we pick up the text again. We're in Luke 18, now verse 9. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the rest of the text. That's Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Pastor Murby, once again, St. Luke introduces this parable, telling us what Jesus is up to. This parable is told to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It sounds like Jesus has in his sights pretty squarely the Pharisees. Tell us about this introduction Jesus gives. Yeah, I think you're you're right on. The, the Pharisees from chapter 17 are likely still standing there. They're, they're probably at least part of this group of people who trusted in themselves. And, and here we, we need to recognize, I think, that we're seeing our Lord's compassion in that he is not forsaking those people and leaving them in their sin, but after encouraging us to prayer um, in in his first parable, he's calling these people to put aside their self-righteousness and and turn to God in prayer that that God would give them true righteousness, the the righteousness of faith um, that doesn't look to what, what we do. Um, and, and so, you know, this, the, the tax collector prays, and um, I, I can never remember who sings the song, but there's a, 
an old country song about, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, and and that's that's totally this this Pharisee's attitude. You know, oh God, I I thank you that I'm me. I thank you that I am so good looking, so wealthy. You know, and, um, everybody loves me. Um, no, it, it's it's just all he, he's so full of himself, and he's probably praying this out loud. Um, you know, standing in front of everyone. And, and and then to to have the gall to point to the tax collector and say, I'm not like him, you know, that, I, I mean, I, I think we value humility in our day a little bit more, and that at least would get somebody called out um, if, if, if they prayed like this. But we do need to recognize that the tendency towards self-righteousness is a tendency inherent in all of the children of Adam. Um, and, and we can be this way. We can look down on others. We can say, God, why aren't you answering me because I'm so good? Or, or, or just, you know, thank you, God, I've got a good life. Um, and I know it's because I'm doing so well with what you've given me. When, um, you know, that just fills us with pride and, you know, the fall will, will come soon. Um, so, so this is a warning. Don't be like the Pharisee. And, and to the Pharisees, this is a warning that they should step outside of themselves and um, and, and learn to have some humility themselves. I think, you know, we may be our, how do I say this? Our humility today, I think you're right that there's something to, we might get mad at the Pharisee for this, but we find other ways of exalting ourselves over others. It's just, we've got different standards. You know, we Anytime we start making comparisons, it seems, we can find ways to say, I am more just than you because of fill in the blank, you know, whatever that may be, whether it's I wore a mask and you didn't, or I choose not to wear a mask and you did. We can come up with any kind of standard, it seems, to think that we are better than others. I think you're exactly right that this heart of the Pharisee dwells in all the children of Adam, and it shows itself in a variety of ways. Jesus uses the context of the temple here, but in our day and age, it shows up maybe in other places. Yeah, and I think our political discourse, whether you're talking about conversations between elected officials or conversations between people, you know, your, your average Joe on the street who, um, the way he looks at people who voted differently than right. him. Um, you know, I, I live in a small town in, in Oklahoma, so, you know, there's still Trump banners all over the place, and there's a few, you know, not even pro-Biden banners, it's anti-Trump banners. Um, but it, it just kind of breaks my heart that the profanity that are on those banners on both sides. Mm. Um, and, I mean, my kids learned vocabulary that they had never heard drive when we drove past houses that had political banners on them. And it just breaks my heart that that's what our society is, is coming to. And and yet I say coming to, but, but it's just a, a, it's this generation's manifestation of the, the pride and, and self-confidence that, that has been inherent, inherent in man since the fall. 
right? It's the same pride that the Pharisee has in his own works. He's set the standard. He's meeting it. The tax collector's not. We do the same thing with different standards in our day and age. This pride, this desire to justify ourselves clings to all our hearts. The tax collector does not have that. So tell us about the tax collector and how he stands. Well, he literally stands far off how he stands in contrast to the attitude of this Pharisee. Yeah, he he won't even, you know, lift up his eyes and 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 look towards um, the the most holy place or or or, or look up towards heaven. Um, his head is bowed down. He beats his breast, um, and he says, "God, be merciful to me, a, a sinner." His prayer is addressed to God. He he. he acknowledges that that he has nothing good you know you know he doesn't he doesn't say god if you do this i'll do that or hey since i did you know since i've lived my life this way god can you you know respond in kind or something he just simply throws himself on the mercy of god and of course over and over again in the gospels we see people approach jesus this way you know mm-hmm. jesus son of david have mercy on me the blind man in jericho cries and um, the, the lepers just, you know, a, a chapter back in, in Luke, the ten lepers cry out to Jesus for mercy. Um, and, and this tax collector, kind of the lowest of the low, goes to the temple. Um, and, and, you know, maybe in Jesus' day, the way that this sounded to them, that, that it doesn't uh, jump out at, at us, though, it, this, this tax collector has been working with the Romans. He's kind of been on the outside of society. Um, he, he's been living off of kind of the hardship of other people as a tax collector. Um, this might really be not just repentance. It certainly is repentance. He acknowledges that he's a sinner, but this might actually be the moment of conversion that, that he recognizes I've got nothing, um, or, or certainly it's a return to to, to a conversion. Uh, you know, just like our um, confession and absolution is a return to our baptism. He's he's throwing himself on the mercy of God, um, and Jesus responds that that his prayer is heard. This is a man who comes down from the temple justified, not the first one. And, and Jesus is clear: it, it, it's not one, and perhaps the other one too. But it is this man. Uh, went down to his house justified rather than the other one. That is, that is, the Pharisee has no justification before God because he wouldn't seek it from God, but this lowly tax collector does. And, and so Jesus you know, summarizes the whole parable by saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And, and so we see, I, I think, kind of three terms that are thematically interrelated to each other get get used in just a couple of sentences here. The 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 tax collector asks for mercy. God be merciful to me. Jesus describes him receiving that mercy as being justified, and then in his explanation um, says the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And and so God showing mercy to us um, is coincides with God 
justifying us. I mean, God declaring us just is not the only way in which he is merciful to us. He, he also provides us with so much in this life. Um, but, but the two are certainly related. Without God's mercy, there's no justification. Um, and, and that justification is being raised up, lifted up, exalted by God. Um, and, and so all of that really c- comes together in a nice package here in, in Jesus' explanation of, of, of this parable. I, I do find it helpful that, you know, in this context, the word for mercy in the Greek has to do with what's happening there at the temple, the sacrifices that are being made. And when you think about Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and what he's going to do, you have a very specific context of the mercy being shown that does deal with justification. And this is one of those places where Jesus uses the language of justification, That's very common terminology in our Lutheran churches, and rightly so. We read it a lot in St. Paul, and Jesus very clearly teaches justification by grace, though he doesn't always use this language. Here he specifically does, and I I love that. Can you, Pastor Murby, just briefly give us the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, that article on which the church stands or falls? Oh, sure. Uh, um, we are justified. We are declared to be righteous in God's sight, to, to be re- reconciled to him um, by God's um, de- by God saying that Christ, Christ's death counts for ours. Um, and, and this is the story. The, the, the gospel story is the gospel of how God accomplishes our justification. Jesus stands in the Jordan River identifying with sinners. He, he stands with us. He, um, John calls him the, the Lamb of God who takes away or who bears the sin of the world. And he doesn't just bear that off into nothingness, but, but he, he takes it upon himself, and he bears it to the cross um, where, where he makes atonement for our sins. And, and Jesus is telling us, and, and quite beautifully here in this parable, that that when we despair of our own efforts, but look to God's mercy, God takes everything that Christ has done, and, and he credits Christ's perfection to us. Um, and, and, and so by faith, when we look to God and say, that I, I've got no place else, but you alone can have mercy on me and justify me, God is faithful and just and forgives our sins um, for, for Christ's sake. And thanks be to God, because we are lousy saviors, Tim. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right, Pastor Murphy. So with about three, three and a half minutes left, help us to summarize this text. Give us the good news from this first part of Luke chapter 18. Okay. Well, like you said, Jesus doesn't always use the language of justification, um, and yet we see over and over again words related to it in, in these two parables and their, their explanations. You know, the, the woman asking for justice, um, that's the language of righteousness. Um, finally, the, the unrighteous judge gives justice, um, and, and how much more then will God give justice um, to, to his people? to those who cry out to him, those whom he has called and chosen in Christ. Um, and so that righteousness, 
given to us by Christ, by the mercy of God, is so much superior than the earthly righteousness that that the Pharisee trusted in. Um, so with these two parables, our Savior points us away from ourselves, that, that, that we would despair of our own effort, and, and just to cling to God and His Word, and that includes praying back to God what He has said to us, that we would be steadfast in, in prayer. So the widow teaches us that we should look for justice, seek justice, and, and, and to do so per- persistently. The tax collector teaches us how to receive justice, that, that it's, it's not my claim to anything from God other than what he in his mercy has already promised in Christ Jesus. Um, we, we despair of our own efforts, but we have full confidence in what Christ has done for us. And, and this puts us in contrast to the world around us, because the, much of the world around us is like the, the unrighteous judge that just simply doesn't care what is right and wrong. I, I'm just going to live for me. Um, that shouldn't be our attitude, but we shouldn't be overwhelmed when we see that attitude in others, because we know um, what Christ has done and continues to do. The Pharisee convinces himself that, that he is just, and we talked about how so, so much of the world acts in this way, um, puffed up with themselves. Um, we don't need that, because we know that Christ's righteousness is all that we need. It's sufficient. He has borne our sins on the cross. He has risen from the dead. He has promised that he is coming soon. And until he comes, like a flash of lightning that the whole world will see at once, We keep constant in prayer, not losing heart, because we know that God hears our prayer, and even when we can't perceive how he is answering us, we know that the answer is coming, and he will not fail to exalt those who have been humbled and have received Christ's mercy and faith. Pastor Ned Murby is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blackwell, Oklahoma, helping us today with Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Murby, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 18 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.